0: Follow us on social media or visit our website at cafamily.net. You know, as a missionary, which I am, I don't know if you knew that, but I am. But uh, uh, anyway, as a missionary, you, you, you travel to other countries and you come back. And so in the 27 years I've been doing this full time, uh, you know, you see things from the outside perspective and the, and the inside. And you know the United States sends out more missionaries than any other nation in the world, but also, as you look at America as it is today, I can remember being fourth grade in beaver and uh you know, I can remember being in fourth grade and the teacher saying, "You know what I'm going to do this till they tell us not to and we bowed our heads and prayed in you know in public school and so uh you know america is is uh needs to needs to get on his face and and once again find that hunger for god and and you honor God. And unfortunately, in 1962 and 1963, two decisions set it, set the United States on a course to where we're at now, where they took the Bible and then prayer out of schools. And so, you know, people are <laughs> talking about this, talking about that. But, you know, if you really want America to turn, you know, turn from violence and things like that, you have to restore, you know, you have to restore, you know, fundamental principles and and, uh, you know, a moral standard, if you want to call it that, within our children. where They'll know these things are wrong. And so, uh, you know, we, we need to pray. So, uh, amen. We have a daunting task, but we need to do it. God, God's called us to do it. I'm going to share a little bit tonight with you guys. Pastor's been sharing a little bit about, you know, the Holy Spirit and the move of the Holy Ghost. Um, you know, and so I'm going to pick up, I, actually, this, <laughs> this started about a year ago. And we were doing the history of Christian Assembly Church. And those those who weren't here that day, Christian Assemblies, uh, I believe we were 92 years old uh, as a church. And so uh, a couple from New Brighton, got saved in 1923 from a guy that came from Erie. And uh, they came and, of course, planted a church in the Corrado household in Midland and uh, Chuck's grandparents. And uh, planted a church, Bible study there. And they weren't saved. They got, they got born again. And, and the Bible study started. And, um, you know, so it carried for many years and, of course, 92 years down the road, here we are. And so, you know, God has a purpose for this church. And um, I'm going to share with you guys a little bit, kind of a twofold thing. You know, not only the purpose of, of really of Christian assembly, but also, you know, what, what is God's <coughs> purpose through our lives as, as individuals. But I also want to talk to you guys um, about something else, and I, I'll get there. We're going we're to kind of take a side trail, but we'll get where we want to get. Amen. You know, they uh, <clears throat> if you have your Bibles, we'll flip over here. Paul, you don't have this, but this is in John 14. How many of you know the church, you know, when you open up your Bible, I can remember being in a church in Nigeria, in Lagos, Nigeria, and, and the brother's name was TB Joshua. I was there four different times, on four different occasions. I spent a, a week here, you know, a few days there, and It was, you know, undescribable. You open up the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and see the miracles taking place there. There was literally no difference. You are looking at the Gospels, miracles taking place around you. And, you know, the church was designed for that. And, you know, the church should look like that. We should still see miracles today. We should still see the movement of God today. And, you know, if we're going to usher in revival, you know, (laughs) churches need to be like that. And be led by the Holy Spirit. In John 14, 12, it says this. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to be with the Father. The day of miracles has not passed. In fact, today, you know, we should see miracles today. A man named Leonard Ravenhill once said this. He said, as long as we're content to live without miracles, we will. And that's a fact. As long as we're willing to roll in here and sit on a pew and lift our hands and spend an hour and a half and go home and be happy for a week and be content with that, you know, we're we're not going to go anywhere. We have to have, like, a holy discontentment of where we're at. We have to have a hunger where we're not satisfied. And, uh, God, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. And so, uh, you know, we can go on day after day, year after year, you know, decade after decade and never see revival. If we don't have that discontentment, that holy, you know, that that hunger within us. Miracles today, a movement of God today, if we want to see it, there, there is a price to pay. We have to be, you know, there's a price that it costs. And so you've heard this many times, of course, you know, we travel and you know, we endeavor to take the gospel to the nations of the world. You've heard it many times that salvation is a free gift. And so in the sense that they're saying, I understand what you're saying, but salvation really is not free. It costs you something. And what it costs you is when you're saved, you have to lay your life down at the altar. Now that doesn't mean you're never going to make a mistake because you will. And then you, you know, of course get, ask God to forgive you and you move on. But salvation really is a self-denial. It is a sacrifice of yourself. God, here's my life. Whatever, everything within me, it belongs to you. Here it is. I lay it at the cross. I laid it at the foot of the cross. I deny myself. In fact, Jesus said, if any man comes after me, he must first what? Deny himself. <laughs> In other words, Will Bridges himself no longer lives. I, lay, I had to lay this down because he said I had to. I have to first deny myself and then take up my cross daily and follow him. And so I have to look at myself as a vessel, as a sacrifice vessel to honor and serve him. In Jeremiah 29, 13, it says this. It, Jesus said this. Or not Jesus, but, but uh, Jeremiah said this. He says, you'll seek me and you'll find me when? Here comes a requirement. There's part. Of it. If you want to seek Him, if you want to find him, he said, listen. He said, you'll seek me and you'll find me. You will discover me. You'll sense my presence. You'll, you'll be in my glory. But he goes on to say this, there's a requirement and a price to pay. And he says this, when you seek me with all your hearts. And so there is a seeking with all of our hearts. It's not a, you know, passage of time like writing a check and putting in the offering. It's not like writing a check for an hour and a half of my time on Sunday morning, you know, giving that as an offering and, and then rolling out of here and, and whatever. But there's a price to pay. And the price is this, is we have to seek him with all of our hearts. And so, you know, somebody say, well, Brother Will, I mean, you know, uh, have, you know, have you lived your life always seeking God without all your heart? Absolutely not. And so I can look back on my life where I've had to get on my face and ask God to forgive me. And, and I, I've looked at my life when I've been probably lukewarm. I've looked at my life sharing the gospel and ministry, sharing Jesus, and I know that I can seek more diligently. And so if we're all going to be honest, we can all do better. And, and if, we, if we think we can't do better, man, you can do better. <laughs> so, you know, we, we need to be honest with ourselves. We can all do better, and I'll start with myself. There's a price to pay. And so the question is, are we willing to pay a price? What price are we willing to pay to see God's movement at Christian Assembly? What price are we willing to pay to see God move in our families, in our, in our school districts, in our homes, in our lives? What price are we willing to pay? And so it can happen. We can see God move. We can see, see God's glory. And I can remember, I've shared this here before, the greatest church service I may have ever been in was in a maximum security prison in South Africa. And so I rolled in, and, and this is God. I mean, this is this is just, if you can describe God, this is it. And so we were doing some outreach and some crusades, and a brother asked me, he said, hey, there's a maximum security prison. You know, would you like to go share the, you know, would you like to go, go and share the gospel? Well, sure. And so I went and we walked in and, you know, there's, there's five, six, seven hundred guys there and they're not behind prison bars. They're within a wall and it's just a free-for-all. And so I'm a little nervous, but I walk around the back and I walk into church service and, I, and you almost fall over from the presence of God. And I'm with, in a maximum security prison. And the pastor preaches the most beautiful Jesus message. 50, 60 guys come up. They're on their face for God. And I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm just crying because the presence of God is so heavy. And I thought afterward, let me, let me ask this guy you know, let me ask this pastor, you know, what Bible school he went to, what background he went to. And there's a, you know, there's a big, real big Bible school in in Johannesburg there. And so I waited till everybody left. We prayed for everybody. And I'm like, brother, you know, I'm here doing mission work. You know, what's your story? You know, where'd you go to Bible school? What's your background? He said, brother, you don't understand. He said, I'm a prisoner, just like those guys. He said, I'm in, in here for double murder. Maybe the most anointed and grace service I've ever been in was led by a man who was in prison for double murder. And so God can use any of us. God can move through you. God can move through me. God can use through, you know, use any of us if we're willing to humble ourselves and seek Him and be available to Him. And so one of the great things that hold you, you know, holds us back is guilt and condemnation. But God is a, a forgiving God, He's a merciful God. And thank God He is. Amen. There are individuals that have ev- evoked the power of God. We can look back, and in fact, in Hebrews 11, it, there's a, what we would call the faith hall of fame, where you know the Bible talks about Abel and uh, Enoch and Noah and rattles off these people who, who were great people in the faith, and these things were written down as an example to be, to you and me that we can learn from them, and uh, you know it talks about uh, you know Isaac and Moses, Gideon, Abraham. And, you know, things we can learn from them. And the Bible says that, that the Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed. And it's done as an example unto us. That in humility, we can look at Scripture and we can learn from these things, of course. You know, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But, you know, the Bible ended, as far as what is written, you know, 2,000 years ago. And so some time ago, like I said, when I was doing the history of our, of the church here, um, you know, I began to to come upon some things. I'm like, you know, there's some things we can learn from which we would call saints or people that have served God and honored God in the last 2,000 years. And so I put together a series. And uh, from this series, I shared a little bit uh, uh, around Christmas time of St. Nicholas, which we would call Interesting Story or Some Good Things We Can Learn. I shared a little bit uh, about William Seymour when I shared about the history of the church. And I shared a little bit about him. And like I said, I've got this series and just some really great, interesting things from people, you know, patrons of, of old, you know, within the last couple thousand years. And so I, I just felt impressed just to share a little bit to pick up with, with kind of where I started, I guess, last year. And we'll share a little bit more and kind of what we can glean uh, from William Seymour. The more I've studied from him, the more interesting this guy has become to me. And, and, and you look at this and you're like, wow, there is so much... To learn and so much to glean from this guy who is not really well known, Um, although all our backgrounds can be traced to him. And so, in the in the faith, once again, if we lay our life down at the altar, you know, spiritually, we can trace him back to being one of our great great grandfathers. You know, of course, spiritually. But uh, I'm going to share just a little bit from him, and see see kind of what we can glean from him. So. Hopefully you guys get something out of this, and it'll bless you, kind of as a, as a bless me. William Seymour, once again, I'll share share a little bit about him, but you can trace where you were at back to him, and so we'll get there. But I, let me just share just a little bit of his history. But uh, William Seymour was the son of two freed slaves, and so he was born in 1870, and uh, he was he was a, uh, he said, born to two free slaves. And uh, he was born in Centerville, Louisiana, to uh, Simon and Phyllis Seymour, who were just seven years freed. They had just been freed, emancipated, seven years previously. And so, and then, and then William was born. He was, uh, he was born in, um, in Centerville, and he was just given a, a basic education. <clears throat> and then when he was 25 years old, he moved to Indianapolis, and then later he wound, out, wound up in Cincinnati, Ohio. And uh, he started uh, gave his life to God, and he started to follow in this holiness uh, movement, to, to be interested kind of in the holiness movement. While in Cincinnati, uh, Seymour suffered a, a bout of smallpox, and uh, right around the year 1900, which caused him to lose his left eye. He had, a, and you'll see pictures of him, and he had a glass eye. Uh, William Half. Shortly after in 1905, he settled in Houston, Texas. And so uh, uh, during the summer, <coughs> he was a temporary replacement for a pastor named Lucy Pharaoh in Houston. And she was a holiness minister, but she would have him come in and speak. And it was through Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh that he met a, a man named Charles Parham. and so who was preaching uh, on the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues, and uh, although very few had experienced this. In fact, it, was, it, it had been, basically been dormant for you know nearly 2,000 years. And recently in 1899, a woman in Topeka, Kansas, uh, believed that she was the first one to, to speak in other tongues. And so under a service that, that he was holding. This is just a, a few years later. And so Charles Parham, who now is speaking on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, had opened a Bible school <clears throat> in Houston on the uh, north side of Houston. If you're familiar with it, there's a street called Rusk Street. And if you turn on Rust Street from Route 10, Interstate 10, turn on Rust Street, the very first building is a police station. And that's where his, his Bible study sat. And so Charles Parham was teaching on the baptism of the Holy Spirit there. William Seymour was so hungry about the things of God and wanting revival and, and God to move in his life. He went, he approached Charles Parham and said, listen, I, I need to learn everything there is about God. What you're speaking about, I'm not familiar with. I don't know about it. Can I come to your Bible school? And and due to Jim Crow laws, uh, he was not allowed. But he said, I'll tell you what I'll do is I'll leave the door open and you can sit in the hallway. And so William Seymour went. And he pulled up a chair and sat in the hallway, and he began to listen to these messages on the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking on our tongues. After about two months at Parham School, <coughs> he was invited to go to Los Angeles. Seymour began to preach on the lessons that he had learned over the last two months, and he preached at, a, uh, at this uh, place that he was invited. The woman's name was Julia Hutchins, and she heard him preach a message on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He went home and when he returned to carry on his messages, she padlocked him out of the church. And so now he's in Los Angeles, preached one message and got nowhere to go. And so anyway, he was invited, he was invited to a, uh, a place, uh, a family called the Asbury's. They had a house on at 214 North Bonnie Bray Street in Los Angeles and so, what I'm about to share with you is a museum that you can visit. You can go in, you can see where it all took place. But he started a Bible study there on North, North Bonnie Bray Street. And for five weeks, he taught on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, what he evidence of speaking in other tongues. After five weeks, a man named Lee received the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. He could see himself wasn't filled either, he was just speaking on it. And so, uh, a man named Brother Lee got filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke with other tongues. I believe it was the next day. William Seymour got filled with the Holy Ghost, and revival began to break out. Within just a few weeks, over thirteen thousand people had had been filled with the Holy Spirit, with the evidence of speaking other tongues. They were poured out into the street. Newspapers were writing about it. There were so many people on the front porch of the Bonnie Bray House that the front porch collapsed, and thankfully, no one, no one, uh, you know, died or, or really got hurt. In the news presses. In Los Angeles, it called uh, it called what was happening. <clears throat> it it uh, called it said people were rambling and making noises like animals and such, and and this was written, of course, in a in secular newspaper. So many people were poured out in the street; they had to find another place to to move their their movement. Now we got thousands of people poured out in the street. This revival's taking place, and uh, they found a place. It was a former A.M.E. church. Um, and it was abandoned, and it was being used as, as a live livery stable. They had horse, you know, animals in there. And uh, so anyway, they went over there and rented it, and it happened to be on Azusa Street in Los Angeles. And so they moved over to three twelve Azusa Street in early April, and the Los Angeles newspaper continued to write about it and called it down a tumble down shack, uh, the Azusa Street where they were meeting about this uh, livery stable. So services there, they said, were noted that you know people were, would speak in other tongues and people would show up, and, of course, they would hear things in their own language. They had one case where a woman showed up and never played piano, and they said the anointing came on her, and she played, I guess, like a concert pianist at this revival. They had folks from a uh, Jewish background show up, and uh, so, some Jewish people showed up, And they said that they heard tongues perfectly in Hebrew. And so they went up to these folks at the Azusa Street Revival and said, where did you learn Hebrew? And they said, I've never learned a word of it. I didn't know what I was saying. And they were speaking Hebrew perfectly in this revival. Within six months, revival is estimated that the Azusa Street Revival touched 50 nations within six months. And they, they had... Up, up toward a hundred thousand people get filled with the Holy Spirit. I believe within the first year, from the Azusa Street revival, it went and touched nations all around the world. In my estimation, the greatest revival, the greatest movement of God that has taken place since the Bible times, since, since the close of Revelation, was with Martin Luther in the year 1517 when he nailed you know, his, his uh, objections to the, uh, to the Catholic Church in a Wittenberg Castle uh, in Germany, which began the Reformation. If you believe in being born again, if you believe in being saved, you can thank a Catholic priest for that. He got revelation of it, and, uh, you know, he put his theses on, on the castle, uh, the Wittenberg Castle, and thus began the Reformation and the revelation that you had to be born again to be saved. And so you can thank a Catholic priest for that. If you're, if you're thankful that you've been filled the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues, you can you can thank the son of two free slaves uh, for, for that revelation. To me, this is the second greatest movement of God since the Bible is, uh, is a movement from the Azusa Street Revival. There's a lot to learn. As I said, stated when we opened up, we are in tremendous need of revival. And so our nation has never needed it more. To be honest with you, I don't know if you know this, but in America for 400 years, even when we were a British colony, for 400 years we read the Bible in public school and prayed both. 400 years, until 1962 and 1963. Five years after that, violent crime at five years after they took prayer and the Bible out of schools, violent crimes went up 500 percent, and thus ushered in what I would call the rebellion movement. It was a movement of rebellion where I'm gonna go, <laughs> you know, burn my clothes in the street. I'm gonna go do this, go do that. Of course, there was a, added a hippie movement, there was a Jesus movement that came out of that, and you know, I'm not, I'm not referring to that. But it began, you know, you could say a movement of rebellion. And so, to me, that movement of rebellion has not really stopped, it has increased. They, they quit wearing, you know, tie-dye shirts and peace signs on their van. But it's the same mentality. We're going to rebel against whatever. And so, be it God, be it, you know, things that we would call natural or what have you. And so, to me, it didn't stop in the 70s. It has continued. The clothes have just changed. And so, to me, we need to return back to where we were before, where there's prayer in school, where, you know, where we're putting a moral standard with our kids. We need a revival. And so I'm going to share with you just a little bit about what I would consider— once again, one of the top two revivals in the history of Christianity in the last 2,000 years. Maybe some things that we can glean from that. And as we see God, you know, on Wednesday nights, as we see God in our church, as we see God in, you know, Chris Lee's prayer in the back. We, we you know, we have worship here and, and here with Tammy. And uh, wherever you're seeking God, wherever you feel led, be a prayer in the back, be in here with worship. There are some things that we can, you know, that we can tap into. And I believe we can usher in a deeper and greater move of God in our own church, in our own lives, and prayerfully, it'll begin to spread as well. Amen. Number one, one of the great things uh, of revival, I'll just share this. Every revival, if you if you examine every, you know, any revival in the last 2,000 years, every revival, be it the Pensacola revival, you know, uh, if you look at that, that was a great move of God, the Pensacola revival. If you look at this or whatever, every revival begins with with a deep intercessory prayer. It's got a, there has to be a deep devotion to prayer and commitment to God to seek God without any shadow of a doubt. There was a young boy in Wales, over uh, you know in in uh, Great Britain, and uh, he was 15 years old, I believe it was. He was 15 and got a hunger for God and wanted to see God move. He, was di- he wasn't content with where his church was at. And he, he got that, uh, I don't know what you call it, a righteous, you know, discontentment or something. But anyway, he devoted himself to God. God, I'm going to seek you. I'm going to seek your face. I'm going to be at the altar and seek you. And this boy sought God for 11 straight years. 11 years, sought God daily. That God would move, that a great pour, you know, outpouring would take place. And when he was 26 years old, Revival broke out through him. He was sharing a message and thus began the great Welsh revival through Evan Roberts. Evan Roberts was 15 when he started to pray and he prayed 11 years before the great Welsh revival took place. Any any revival takes place has to be a dedication to seeking God and prayer without any shadow of a doubt. Number two, the thing we can learn from revival, number two is humility. Humility is a tremendous ingredient into seeing, seeing God move. In 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7, it says, humble yourselves. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. It says, humble yourselves. Everybody say, humble yourself. We need to humble ourselves. Well, what does that mean? Once again, it means we, we return to the altar and lay it all down. My life no longer belongs to me. It now belongs to you. And God, here I am. I can remember the day I got born again, man, I laid it all down. I've taken it back many times since. I've had to put it back at the altar. But, uh, you know, which if we're honest, we've probably all done that. But humility is, is an act of surrender once again to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That we are here, you know, churches of old, you know, when you go in, a, the church I grew up in had a beautiful altar. And I can remember going in there, uh, there would be meetings. I would have to go to meetings when I was a kid. And... Um, I would go to these, and I remember it'd be pitch dark in the sanctuary, and I wander in. You know, I, to be honest, I'm not really saved, but I'd go up to the altar and I kneel before the altar in this church, and I said, God, listen, man, if you're real, I, I just want to know you. I want to serve you. I want to, you know, do whatever you want to do with my life. And here I am, and I'm just a kid praying at the altar. We need to honor the altar and look at it as a place of surrender, a place of humility, a place where we dedicate it all back to Him. It says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so in the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. In John 13, it says this. uh, It said, the evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of uh, Simon Iscariot, uh, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. And it goes on to say... um, We'll pick up in verse 7. Jesus said, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. Oh, I skipped, I skipped something. Let's go to verse, let's go back to verse 3. Apologies. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was turning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. You know, we could stop right there, and I could preach 50 messages. The the king of kings and the Lord of lords left heaven to come and wash the dirtiest part of his disciples' body, their feet. Drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter and said to him, Lord, uh, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. And no, said Peter, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus said, unless I I wash you, you have no place with me. Then, then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those, those who have uh, had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you're, and, and you're clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that, that's why he said not everyone was clean. And then I want you guys to see this. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his, uh, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand <clears throat> what I've done for you, he asked. You call me teacher, and you call me Lord, and rightfully so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, look at this. He said, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set before you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And so Jesus goes through this entire process of washing feet for the purpose of setting an example for you and me on how we're to live our lives. We're to live our lives in humility as servants to others. And so, you know, when we lay our life down at the foot of the cross, we lay our name down, we lay, we lay it all down to be a Christian. And so, you know, prayerfully, we are Christians before we are Wilbreds or, or whoever. My life belongs to him. I'm trying to, you know, trying to serve him. And so we lay our lives down. I am now a Christian, a servant of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You know, my cousin just called me two days ago. I got a cousin in Washington, D.C., And he called me. He said, man, how are you doing? You know, how are you working with these people and, you know, in these dirty places and, you know, homeless or working in Haiti? And Haiti's rough if you haven't been there. I mean, it's rough. And so, uh, you know, how are you working? I said, well, brother, when I got saved, I laid it all down in the altar. And whatever he wants to do with me, he's welcome. And so, you know, we we need to live life uh, with that attitude. And so that we're willing to pay the price for him. Somebody once said that the way to the throne room is through the servants' quarters. And so that's a good way of looking at life, that if you want to be exalted, if you want to be lifted up, if you want your life to be meaningful, then live as a servant. Live to serve others, to be a blessing to others. If you want God to move, start with humility. It said that William Seymour would spend five and six hours a day sometimes with his head in an apple crate, seeking God and humbling, humbling himself before the King of kings and Lord of lords. William Seymour didn't want to be seen. He wanted God to be glorified, and so when we, we're at church, when we're in the pulpit, when we're wherever we're at, we need to do our best to get out of the way that, that people would see see the King. And so that's how we need to live life. They say at the Zuzas Street revival that uh, I guess one time that um, Smith Wigglesworth came in, John G. Lake came in, and it was there, it was such a tone set in his church that it was as as if you know the next door neighbor wandered in that you know no fanfare at all. Oh, there's Smith Wigglesworth. Praise God, Father God, we seek you, we honor you and bless you. And they would seek God together. And, you know, really that's what the throne is going to be like. When you're at the throne, when I'm at the throne, we're not going to be, hey, this is who I am. We're going to be, dear God, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that I'm allowed to be here. Thank you that you saved me and you redeemed me and deliver me and really it doesn't, wander, it doesn't matter who wanders in and who's next to us. Our focus would be on him and glorifying him, and so if we want revival to happen, it begins with prayer, but also with humility. Amen. Secondly, uh, or thirdly, William Seymour is a great proponent of unity, that we need to be individuals of unity, that we are all servants together, that none of us are better than the other. None of us are counted better. I'm not counted better than you. You're not counted better than me. We are living sacrifices to glorify him and magnify him. And so regardless of who wanders in here, we are all on the same team as servants, forgiven, washed clean by the blood of Jesus. And then we are all on the same team. And so because I do this and because you do that, doesn't matter. We are on the same team working together to glorify him, magnify him in our Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. My name does not matter. What I do does not matter. These things do not matter. What matters is I lay my life at the altar. You lay your life at the altar. You're forgiven. Praise the Lord. I'm forgiven. Let's go together and let's win some souls and let, let's do God's work together. And so I take care of me. You take care of you. And let's let's go together. We're we're all on the same team. He was a big proponent of unity. Color didn't ma- matter. Race didn't matter. And... It, he believed in integrated worship. And so an interesting thing was when they wrote in the newspapers is that there was such a, a spirit of unity. It didn't matter what background you came from. On the west coast of the United States, there are a lot of people who come from Asia. You have all, all different backgrounds there. And he said that in Azusa Street Revival, they were all on their face seeking God and honoring God together. And so it should be the same with us. Regardless of your background, regardless of our situation, our name, our history, no matter what, whether you got saved yesterday or whether you got saved 80 years ago. Listen, we're all forgiven. We're all on the same team. Let's honor God and worship God. Let's seek his presence together, and then let's go take it to the nations. That needs to be our attitude. Amen. And then I want to share this lastly, is lastly, don't get sidetracked. Don't allow, you know, things to get you sidetracked from what God has called you to do. William Seymour, as I said, the more I study him, the more I love this, this character of, you know, of... Of uh, Christianity. I love his attitude. I love his humility. I love his, the fact that he wanted zero attention at all. He just wanted to live as a servant and, and usher in the presence of God. And so what a tremendous example for us. But he was faced with great challenges. William Seymour was. And I'll just say this, is that uh, there were three individuals. Once again, he was the son of two free slaves. Uh, there were three individuals that, that became a great challenge to him. Number one, Charles Parham. Uh, showed up, who actually is the one that that was teaching him about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and uh, showed up at the Azusa Street, Azusa Street revival and was offended that that whites and blacks were integrated and worshiping at the altar together. He felt that they should be segregated, and uh, of course he was he was uh, asked to leave the revival, and of course rightfully so. So. Um, With that being said, there's a prominent denomination that trace their roots back to him. They have apologized, and to be honest with you, I'm with that organization. But, um, you know, as we head forward, you know, Brother Hagin once said this. He said, uh, eat the meat and leave the bones. And so, uh, you know, or eat the hay and leave the sticks. There's something we can learn from everybody, including everyone in here. There's positive things we can learn from everyone in here. There's other things that that maybe we want to take something from somebody else. And so, in all cases in life, try to eat the hay and leave the sticks. Amen. Another man named William Durham, <clears throat> which we trace our roots back to. Christian Assembly traces our roots back to. William Durham was a preacher. He's actually from Kentucky. He, he uh, had a, a prominent church in Chicago. Uh, heard about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and what was going on at the Azusa Street Revival. He went to California, to Azusa Street, went to the Revival. And William Seymour asked him to preach there. And uh, William Durham got filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking other tongues, but he got off doctrinally from what William Seymour agreed with. And so from that, he came back and they were teaching him. Uh, he was teaching that, uh, you know, when you get sa- saved or sanctification is more of a process rather than immediate, and they had conflict. And uh, actually, he was asked to leave the church, went. And took half the congregation with him and actually split the Azusa Street Revival. And so from there, he went back to Chicago. From Chicago, a man named Francescan uh, brought it to the Italian community there. From there, went to Erie, from Erie to New Brighton, New Brighton to here. So we come through that line. Once again, eat the hay, leave the sticks. So uh, there's something we can learn from everybody, you know, and and people make mistakes as well. So... William Durham was, was asked to leave uh, the Azusa Street Revival uh, because of that. But he, he had good things to offer that we can glean from. But in this area, you know, maybe, maybe doctrinally uh, we wouldn't align with that. Uh, and then lastly, one of the big things that was a downfall of the Azusa Street Revival, he had a secretary, and her name was Florence Crawford. And uh, Florence was a German woman. And so Florence was there. She was his secretary, And, uh, William Seymour was a single man and he decided to marry, uh, this woman. She, they were both single, had every right to, they married. She was offended, didn't want him to get married, whatever. She, at this point, the Azusa Street Revival had a mailing list of 50,000, um, mailers that they were sending out, I believe monthly. And, you know, saying what, what was going on with the Azusa Street Revival, which was coming, you know, causing the droves to come to the Azusa Street Revival. And, uh. Yeah, monthly, 50000 And so when she became offended, she took the mailing list and moved to Oregon. And when she went to Oregon, she tried to open up her own Bible school, which she did. It was small. It was small, but she took the mailing list. And knowing that this would greatly impact the Azusa Street Revival, William Seymour and two of his leaders went to Oregon to get it back from this woman, Florence Crawford. But she was, uh, they said she was a hard woman. And so he tried to get the mailing list back, and she refused to give it to him, and they returned back to Los Angeles without the mailing list. And soon after, it caused, you know, the Azusa Street Revival to dwindle because most people thought it it was finished. Most people, you know, they weren't getting updated on what was going on, and and the numbers dwindled dwindled greatly. He kept after. He continued until his death until 1922. William Seymour did. But he was definitely faced with challenges. To impact the world, you got to keep rolling. you got to keep going. Even when the challenges are there, God's a good God. He's a faithful God, and, and you have to stay in a heart of humility and keep moving to endeavor to win souls. Amen. Within two years, I spoke wrong. I said six months. Within two years, the movement had spread to 50 nations of the world, including Britain, Scandinavia, Germany, Holland, Egypt, Syria, Palestine, South Africa, Hong Kong, China, and India as well as many others. Christian leaders visited from all over the world, visited the Azusa Street Revival. Today, there's over 600 million adherents to the Pentecostal movement because of the Azusa Street Revival. 600 million. That's crazy. Out of all the people, the most influential people, I saw one study say this, I've seen a couple studies. Out of the most influential people, in the world of the 20th century, I saw one list have William Seymour as number one. Number one, the son of two freed slaves. I've seen other lists. Henry Ford would be up there, of course, with a car and things like that. So it's debatable, however you're going to put the list. But for, you know, he is certainly one of the most influential people of the 20th century. Once again, my, in my opinion, the second most important movement of God since the times of the Bible. If you would have chosen to quit, if you would have chose to give up, then, of course, you know, we wouldn't see 600 million people saved. I say all that to say this, exactly what I said in the beginning. God has a purpose for us at Christian Assembly Church. We are 90 years old, 92. I have to go back and look. I forget what it is. But anyway, we were created for a purpose, and the purpose is not you. The purpose of this church has nothing to do with you, once again, your background, your name, your history, anything like that. We are created to be a vessel of light, to get the gospel to our Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Today in the world, there's women crying out for an answer. Today in Texas, there's people crying out for an answer. They need an answer. Throughout the world, people are crying out, God, you know, you you have to send somebody to help me, to save me. In our community, in our own area, there's people crying out for an answer. And we've been built, we are built, constructed for that, that we would be trained, we'd be developed, we'd be come in, get born again, we'd lay everything in the altar, we'd filled the Holy Ghost, and then we'd take the gospel to the nations of the world. At any point that if we look at Christian assembly as less than that, then our sights are, are too narrow. We are created for, for the nations. We are created for the world, that the gospel would get to the nations, that thousands of people would be saved and won. And so if Tammy comes up, Lexi, if these people come up, you know, and worship God, and we lift our hands and praise God, that's wonderful if we usher in the presence of God. You know what's even better? Is if we worship God and people get inspired and then go share Jesus with somebody and go take the gospel to the nations of the world. We need revival in our nation. And for it to start, there's great things we can learn. Number one, we need to be individuals of prayer. We need to be individuals of humility. We need to be at the altar, surrendering all at the altar. God inhabits the praises of his people. And so we need to be... Instruments that that usher in the presence of God, that we would be able to get it out once again to our Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and in the innermost parts of the world. Amen.